Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to the gospel of John, John chapter 12. We are going to finish out John chapter 12 this morning, Lord willing. And we come to an amazing section of scripture. This is just marvelous. This, uh, one of the reasons why I say Lord willing we might get to the end of this is because as I was going through this, the notes kept getting longer and longer and longer and I realize these two sections, though they go together perfectly, and that's why I want to preach them as one unit, and by the Lord's help and with the fruit of the spirit of self-control here, I'll be able to do that. Um, But these two sections, though they are joined together, both of them go so deep, and and I don't want us to lose that depth. So we'll see what the Lord has for us this morning. This section at the end of John chapter 12 is the culmination of Jesus's public ministry. From here on out, Jesus is going to be in the upper room, John chapter 13. He's going to be washing his disciples' feet, upper room. Then he's going to walk out of the upper room uh, through the Kidron Valley over to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to pray. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be led back into the city of Jerusalem. He's going to be tried. He's going to be crucified. And he will rise again. So we are almost at the end of Jesus' life, his earthly life. And what John is going to do, what John the gospel writer does here at the end of chapter 12, this is really, though it's not necessarily the the exact middle chapter-wise of this book or verse-wise of this book, this is the middle of John's gospel thematically speaking. Um, When John ends chapter 12, the first half of the gospel of John is done. And the second half will open in chapter 13. And so he summarizes everything that we've seen in chapter 1 through 12 at the end here, he's, he's giving a culmination, a summary statement. What he's going to do is summarize for us the unbelief of the Jews as a whole and the rejection of their Messiah. And he's going to give us scriptural context for why that is, why that happens, why they rejected him. And then he's going to give us a final summary of Jesus's own message that we've seen throughout the entirety of this gospel thus far. The summary that he gives us matches almost identically to the prologue of the book in chapter 1. We're going to go uh, to that at the end of the sermon. It's a bookend. We've got chapter 1 and we've got the end of chapter 12. It's a beautiful bookend. But pronounced in both chapter 1 and and the end of chapter 12, pronounced in both is a note of failure. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him, chapter 1. And here, the Jews are going to reject him, out and out rejection. And I, I believe what John is going to do is he's anticipating our question, which is why doesn't anyone believe him? Why aren't people following him? They're just rejecting him. They see everything just like we're seeing everything, but they're rejecting. Why is that? And John's going to answer those questions for us this morning. So let's read for sake of context, though we will only be studying verses 37 through verse 50. Let's go all the way back to 27. John chapter 12, verse 27. We'll read this section. We'll pray and we'll dive in. Jesus says, verse 27, Now my soul has become troubled. But what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? It's for this purpose that I came for this hour. So, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. 
The crowd then answered him, we've heard out of the law that Christ, the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and he hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue because they loved the glory of men rather than the glory of God. Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him because I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. God, I pray that you'd be gracious to us this morning. Um, Enlarge in our time supernaturally. And God, I pray that your spirit would confirm these realities Uh, These are weighty truths that matter and pertain to us and are incredibly relevant for us today. And so I pray that we would be guided by your spirit as we walk through this text. That we would see exactly what the gospel writer wants us to see. Exactly what the Holy Spirit wants us to see since he is the one who wrote this gospel. And God, I pray that we would bow the knee to your beautiful sovereign control and we'd bow the knee to our human responsibility and that we would submit to you our gracious king spirit be our guide may the hearers of this message hear a much better sermon than is preached as the spirit is the one who will clarify these truths in our hearts we pray in the name of jesus our savior amen So we have two main sections. You can see at verse 37 through verse 43 is John speaking. He summarizes the end of Jesus's public ministry. Jesus goes away in verse 36. He hides himself and John gives a a summary statement, a culmination. 
In verse 44 through the end of the chapter is Jesus speaking, although we don't have any context for where Jesus is, why he's saying these things, when he is saying these things. So most people would say, and I would agree with them, that John is summarizing what Jesus had said earlier at some point in his earthly ministry. And he's bringing it all to summarize at the end, a bookend to everything that Jesus had said about himself to make one final offer. Will you receive him? Will you believe him? And then we're going to move to a private ministry in the upper room with his disciples in chapter 13. There's finality here. John ends the public ministry of Jesus here. This is it. From here we move on to a very private ministry. And there's a a huge question that lingers over this text. And the question is, did the unbelief of Israel mean that God's plan failed? God sent Jesus as the Messiah to be received, to be accepted, and he was rejected. Is God looking on saying, what's happening? This isn't supposed to happen this way. I think that's why John is going to write this section. He's going to give us, as you can see in the, the sermon title, he's going to give us a theology of unbelief. And this is not just unbelief for national Israel back then. This is unbelief for everyone today. This is why people will not believe. He gives us a, a beautiful picture of a theology of unbelief. Verse 37, he starts by saying, but though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. They weren't believing, even though they saw the signs. And and please mark it. We've said it a number of times in the Gospel of John. Signs do not save you. So many people are looking for if God would just do something miraculous and powerful and I would see it, then I would bow the knee and believe that, that he is who he claims to be. Signs don't save you. Signs point to what will save you. But if you just enjoy the sign and you don't let the sign point you to the author of the sign, Jesus Christ, and treasure him above the sign, then you do not have salvation. Think of the Israelites. I think of them wandering in the wilderness. They saw the hand of the Lord part the Red Sea. They walked through on dry land. They saw manna that had never existed before and God created it so that they would be able to eat it. They had a perfect number of quail given to them. Every day, they had perfect abundance of what they needed, no less, no more, perfectly, always measured out by God perfectly. And yet they still think, you know, God doesn't love us. He's not going to take care of us. Where is he? He's probably gone. Let's build a golden calf because we have no God. Seeing signs is not the ultimate goal. They can help in bringing salvation, but signs alone do not save. For Jesus, no greater sign than the raising of Lazarus could have been given. Um, Remember, John just keeps stacking up signs. There's seven main signs that John gives us. He starts by uh, chapter 2, changing the water into wine. He says this is the first of the signs that Jesus performed. Jesus then heals the royal official son in Capernaum in John chapter 4. He heals the paralytic at Bethesda, Bethesda, the pools of Bethesda in John chapter 5. He feeds the 5,000 in John 6. He walks on water in John 6. He heals the man born uh, blind in John 9, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead in John 11. Seven amazing signs. And yet, they're not believing. Why? Why are they refusing to believe? Here's where we get John's theology of unbelief. Why won't people believe? There's four points that John's going to give us, and they are just shoved into three really small verses. So, I'm going to just read these verses, we're going to make notes on them, and then we'll go uh, point by point through 
John's theology of unbelief. Verse 38, he says this. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. And he's going to quote Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Because of this, for this reason, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, and this is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. So he quotes two verses from Isaiah. And in doing so, he's going to give us a beautiful picture, a helpful, clear picture of why people will not believe. Let me give you John's theology of unbelief. Number one, unbelief does not surprise God at all. Unbelief does not surprise God at all. When people choose not to believe in God, he's not looking going, why not? What's happening? This is not the plan. This is not what's supposed to be happening. They're supposed to believe. I just did an amazing miracle. Why aren't they believing? Unbelief does not shock or surprise God at all. These are two prophecies from the Old Testament that declare the Messiah would be rejected. So already God is saying in the Old Testament, I know I'm going to send my son and I know my son will be rejected. So I know that people will not believe in him. They're two very different texts. It's very interesting. If I were to ask you, go to the Old Testament and give me a verse that tells me why people will not believe in God. Why are people hard-hearted? Why do people choose not to believe in God? Where would you go in the Old Testament? I wouldn't necessarily go here, but John goes here. Very familiar text, two very different texts. First, he goes to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, you know it. The, the suffering servant starts with this quotation. Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who's believed in the Messiah and the servant that God has sent? Who's believed in him? Notice I think John is quoting the the second part of that verse, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Because the signs that have all been seen by these Jewish people, they have seen the arm of the Lord been revealed. And yet they are refusing to believe. Isaiah says that in Isaiah 53, verse 1. And by the way, Paul will quote the exact same verse in Romans chapter 10, verse 16. When he says, not everybody would heed the good news because Isaiah said, not everybody's going to. Who has believed our report? Why wouldn't they believe? In the context of Isaiah 53, you guys remember the rest of it, right? Isaiah 53, verse 1, who's believed the report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, he grew up before them, but he had no form or stately majesty. He had no appearance that we would look upon him with wonder and awe. He was a normal person. That answers the question. Why don't people believe in Jesus as Messiah? Because he was normal. He had no amazing majesty. He had no amazing glory that they thought he should have if he's to be the Messiah. Remember, they welcomed him at the triumphal entry. Come on and take over Rome. Show your power and your glory in the way that we want you to. And he said, no, I'm meek and lowly and humble and I'm going to die. Well, that's not the kind of Messiah we want. So we're not going to believe in that Messiah. We're not going to believe in that Messiah. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. You know Isaiah chapter 6, right? We have the, the glory of the Lord. Isaiah sees in the temple the train of the Lord, filling the temple with glory. And the, the seraphim come before him. He's unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord. You know that section of Scripture. Then at the end, when he says, here am I, Lord, send me. Who's going to go for us? Here am I, Lord, send me. 
Okay, you're commissioned to go, but let me tell you, as you go, verse 10, people are not going to see. They're not going to hear. And they're not going to hear because I'm going to blind their eyes. I'm going to harden their hearts. They're not going to see. Verse 40 is the quotation of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. They're not going to see with their eyes. They're not going to perceive with their heart. They're not going to be converted, and I'm not going to heal them. So you're going as my messenger, but nothing's going to happen. Let me just tell you that beforehand. He says, by the way, there's a little remnant that's going to believe. But your ministry won't end up working. And just like Isaiah, his ministry doesn't work, quote unquote, in the fact that he's rejected and not received. So too, Jesus will be rejected and not received. This is a description of what happened right after Isaiah received the vision. I see a vision of God glorified. I want to go tell others of that vision. And God says, they're not going to believe. So Isaiah 53, they're not going to believe because Jesus isn't the glorious, majestic Messiah that we want him to be. Well, then, but you go, Isaiah 6, he is the glorious, majestic. Look at him, filled with glory and splendor. But he's not the God that people want to submit to. That God, though glorious, is a God that says, I have full control over your life or I don't have control over anything. I'm not, I, I'm not going to be partially king in your life. And they don't want to surrender their will to that God, even though he's glorious. And God says, they're not going to receive the message. You need to surrender everything you have to me. Kill your will and live according to my commandments. They're not, people don't want to do that. So observation number one here, point number one that John is telling us is the unbelief of the Jews here and the unbelief that we see in the world today is not a surprise. It's not a surprise to God. In other words, we can say this. God knew that Israel would reject Jesus because he was a Messiah that they didn't want. They didn't want his lowliness. And they didn't want, ultimately, the majesty of God and the deity of God to rule every aspect of their life. They didn't want that. We want a God of our own making, of our own choosing. Number two, not only is unbelief not a surprise to God, but number two, unbelief does not thwart God's plans. Unbelief does not thwart God's plans. Notice all of these connector words that John uses. Verse 38, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke. My Bible says this was to fulfill. It's actually a bad translation of that phrase. If you go back to verse 37, though he performed so many signs before them, they were not believing in him. And the literal literal Greek is so that Isaiah would be fulfilled. They didn't believe so that a prophecy would happen and it would be fulfilled. They didn't believe so that Isaiah would be fulfilled. And the prophecy is, Lord, who has believed the report, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then another connector, verse 39, for this reason, they could not believe. So for the prophetic reason, they could not believe because, another connector, Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts so that they would not see. God's behind all of this. Unbelief doesn't thwart God's plans. In fact, unbelief is God's plan. It's a part of his plan. All of those connectors, for this reason, so that, because of, so that, all of this is telling us God had a plan. What is God's plan? God's plan is that the glorious end of Jesus' ministry, the full end of it, would be owing to the rejection of Jesus. He was rejected. He was sent to the cross because he was rejected. He was killed. And therefore, people can be saved because he was rejected. Turn to Romans chapter 11. Paul tells us this so emphatically in Romans chapter 11. If you start in verse 11 of chapter 11, 
Paul is telling us that Israel rejected their Messiah, but it's not an ultimate rejection. They will receive him as Messiah in the last days. And he says this in verse 11, I say then they did not stumble so as to fall. So they've stumbled, they rejected him, but it's not a, a full stumbling. They will not ultimately fall. May it never be. But by their transgression, by their rejection and unbelief, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now it's our job to go to the world and tell the world Jesus is the Messiah. If their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? It's going to happen. They're going to be saved. Verse 15, if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant. They're rejected and we have been accepted in because we've received Jesus, but we can't be arrogant about it. It's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Go down to verse 25. I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, so that all Israel will be saved. In the end, all national Israel on a whole scale will be saved in the tribulation. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Paul tells us in Romans 11, this was God's plan all along. God knew I'm going to send my Messiah, and I know that he's not the Messiah they want. They're going to reject him. But I'm going to use that rejection to bring about salvation, because as they reject him and kill him, I'm going to use that death to cleanse sinners. So unbelief does not thwart God's plan. In fact, joy to the world is the point of the unbelief of Israel. Jesus had to be killed. He had to be rejected so that we could be saved. So unbelief is not a surprise to God. Unbelief doesn't support or doesn't thwart God's plans. It is a part of God's plan. But back in John chapter 12, that naturally brings about the question. And I know you probably have it in your mind and your heart. So if God planned their unbelief, And verse 40 tells us he planned this very, very carefully. He blinds their eyes. He hardens their hearts. So they're going to stand before God and say, man, I wanted to believe in you, but you were the one that blinded my heart, blinded my eyes. No. And that's John's point number three. Unbelief is a person's own fault. Unbelief is a person's own fault. God's planning of Israel's unbelief does not contradict human responsibility. God's planning of Israel's unbelief does not contradict human responsibility. It doesn't contradict them having their own guilt. Verse 39, for this reason they could not believe. Man, that is, as F.F. Bruce says, that is incredibly predestinarian. God planned that this would happen. He chose that this would happen. But, F.F. Bruce continues, not one of them was fated to be incapable of belief. God planned it, but he plans it in such a way that it does not contradict with their 
responsibility to believe. God is 100% sovereign. Man is 100% responsible. And I want to show you that here in the text. If you don't see it in the text, just forget what I'm saying. I want to show you that. There's a formula that isn't just in this text. It's in Exodus. It's in Romans. There's a formula that you see even in Isaiah where um, John is drawing from. He's quoting from. The formula is this. Verse 37. They were not believing. Verse 39. They could not believe. They did not believe. They would not believe. Therefore, they could not believe. God is a very patient God. Very long-suffering God. But there is a time when your unbelief is final and you do not have another chance. There is a time, right? Uh, Psalm chapter 32. Seek him while he may be found. There comes a time for all of us when in our unbelief, Judgment happens and our unbelief is final. We see that in the Old Testament. We see that in several different places. We see that with Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And then God says, if you choose not to believe in me, I'm going to give you time and time again, sign after sign, plague after plague that's supposed to open your eyes to show you the glory, to submit, to bow down, to repent. But if you continue to choose to harden your heart, then I will continue to harden your heart. I'm going to, in the words of Romans 1, I'm going to turn you over to what you want. If you, if you don't want me, then fine, you don't have me. That's what happened in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, what God is pronouncing through Isaiah is judgment upon Israel. He had told Israel, repent, repent, repent for about 350 years, and they said, we don't want to. And so he said, fine, then you're not going to be able to believe this message. You have, you have not repented for hundreds of years you don't have another opportunity. It's done. It's final. But notice it doesn't start there. It doesn't start there. It starts with, I don't want to believe. And therefore, because you will not believe, you cannot believe. That's the formula. Because you will not, you cannot. John chapter 3, verse 18. If you do not believe, you are condemned. It's your choice. Will you believe or not? If you don't believe, you will be condemned. It's not a matter of God planning your unbelief such that you're saying, I don't really know why I don't want to believe in God, but there's just something in me that's saying I shouldn't believe in him, and I don't know what it is. I really kind of want to believe in God, but I don't know. There's two categories in our minds that I think we've all had before. And Al Mohler, I was listening to a Q&A with R.C. Sproul and Al Mohler and a bunch of different people, and and there was a question. The question was, can people um, believe in God and choose to do so? Or can people choose to say, I don't want to? And uh, similar to this, a question of predestination. And, and Al Mohler said it so well, and, and I would and commend it to us. There's two categories of people we need to throw out of our minds because they're unbiblical. Okay, category number one, there is nobody who wants to believe in God pleading with God, I want to believe in you, I love you, I want to follow you. And God says, sorry, uh, I have you down for destined for unbelief. Um, I really wish it wasn't that way, but um, it says here I need to harden your heart, and so you can't. I'm sorry. 
There's nobody that's wanting to follow after God. There's nobody in this passage of the Jews that's saying, oh, I want to believe, but for some reason I can't because God's hardening my heart. I want to believe, but God's doing this to harden my heart. No, no, no. Your heart is already hardened and God's just turning you over. Fine. If you don't want me, then you won't have me. The second category of people is the opposite. We need to be careful with this, but I believe this is, this is clear and needs to be said. We... We need to throw out, number one, we need to throw out in our minds the person that says, I want God desperately, and God says, sorry, you're not destined to believe, you're destined to not believe. The other person we need to throw out of our minds is the person that says, I don't want to believe in God, and God says, sorry, man, I've got you on my team, you've got to believe in me. No, we have to be careful here because all of us don't want to believe in God, right? All of us are enemies of God. But there's nobody in heaven that's going, man, I don't want to be here. I, I, don't, I didn't want to believe, and I don't know why I'm here, because I hate this place. So what does God do to every single person who ultimately winds up in heaven? What does he do? He woos them, right? Romans chapter 11, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. He draws us such that at an affection level, he changes your heart. This is the new birth, right? He changes your heart so that you do want him. Now, he's the one that has to do that work in your life, but ultimately, you want to be with him. So there's nobody that says, as God is drawing them, there's nobody that's finally going to say, I don't want to be here, but I guess I am because he called me. I'm on the list of I have to believe. We have to throw those two people out. There's nobody who says, I really want to believe. And God says, eh, sorry, you're not destined to believe. And there's nobody that says, I don't want to believe, finally. And God says, well, sorry, you're on my list. You have to believe. God's going to change your heart such that you want him. And ultimately, that's what you get when you go to heaven. And if you don't want him, God's going to say, if you live in that state of unbelief, God's going to say, fine. If you don't want me, then you won't have me. And that's what hell is, right? Hell is a place where God is completely absent except for his judgment and his wrath. If you didn't want me, you won't have my grace and my kindness. So, Unbelief is absolutely a person's own fault. Diving down into what Jesus is going to say, um, he's going to say, verse uh, 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. It's your choice. Will you believe? Will you believe? So unbelief, according to John in his theology here, unbelief is not a surprise to God. It doesn't thwart God's plans. It's a part of God's plan. But because it's a part of God's plan doesn't negate human responsibility. And that's why our formula is given to us. They, they won't believe and therefore they can't believe. And number four, finally, unbelief is rooted in a person's love for themselves. Unbelief is rooted in a person's love for themselves. Pick it up in verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless... Many, even of the rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue because they loved the, my Bible says approval, it's the word glory. They loved the glory of men rather than the glory of God. So some do believe. This is, again, very similar. It's the bookend of the prologue. In the prologue, uh, John chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own, his own did not receive him. But there's a remnant. As many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So most won't, but some do. Same here. Many did not believe, 
Yet there were some that believed. Verse 42. Nevertheless, there were some. But is this good belief? Is this saving belief? I personally would say not yet. Maybe you could put Joseph of Arimathea in here. Maybe you could put Nicodemus in there. Rulers that, yeah, that guy looks to be the Messiah, but there's still something that's a barrier. And that's the fourth point in John's theology of unbelief. Unbelief is rooted in a person's love for themselves. Why? Verse 43. They love the approval of men. They love the glory given to them by men. I'd rather have man praise me than live to hear God honor me on the last day. I'd rather do that. You can't be saved, right? John chapter 5, verse 44. Write it down. John chapter 5, verse 44. Jesus says, you cannot believe in me if your heart is governed by the glory of man and not the glory of God. You can't do it. You cannot believe in me if your heart loves the praise and the glory of man rather than the praise and the glory of God. It's impossible. Those two are at odds. And I, I just, I think it's so interesting that John puts verse 41 there. Isaiah spoke these things because he saw the glory of God and he's undone by seeing God's glory. And he says, yeah, I don't need the praise of man. I don't need the glory of man. I have the glory of God. That's what I want. And that's why John says, but these people, though they saw the same glory, right? We have beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. We've seen it, but we love our own glory better than his glory. That will always lead to unbelief. That will always lead to unbelief. It's incompatible with saving faith. The root of unbelief is to love the glory of man, the centrality of man, the praise of man, and not the glory of God, the centrality and the supremacy of God. This is the exact backwards of the way it should be. And it has to change if you want to believe. And that's the new birth. That you say, I used to love the glory that I received from man, but now I love the glory of God. That's the new birth. So John gives us four quick points in these short verses to say, no, the unbelief of Israel is not thwarting God's plan. It's not a surprise to him. God planned it. But in his plan of their unbelief, they are still humanly responsible. They are absolutely culpable for what they've done. And he proves it by saying they're ultimately not believing in God and Jesus as the son of God because they love the glory of man. That's, that's John's theology of unbelief. If you want kind of a, a point number, number two here, let's go to Jesus' invitation to belief. We have John's theology of unbelief. He gives us those four points. And now we have Jesus' invitation to believe. This is verse 44. And again, John just says Jesus cried out. We don't know where he is. We don't know if this is happening sequentially. It probably isn't. Jesus has hid himself, and he's not speaking to crowds anymore. So my guess, and most commentators would say, that what John is doing here is he's compiling line by line just a summarization, a synopsis of everything that Jesus has claimed about himself. And he's saying this. Look, the Jews as a whole are not believing because they love the glory that they receive from men. They don't believe But what about you? This whole book, as these banners have said to us every single Sunday, this whole book is to help you believe so that you would believe that the the Son of God truly is who he claims to be. And so here, as John ends the first half of his book, he says, will you believe? And he uses Jesus' words to say, 
invitation to believe here now believe just because they didn't believe doesn't mean you don't have to follow that same road so verse 44 jesus cries out and in his invitation in this final appeal he's going to say several different things about himself and i just want to summarize them together cries out and he says verse 44 he who believes in me does not believe in me but in him who sent me And he who sees me sees the one who sent me. Number one, Jesus says, I've been sent by the Father to reveal the Father. I've been sent by the Father to reveal the Father. Remember, this is just the book end of the beginning of the book. No one has seen God, John said in John chapter 1. No one has seen God at any time. But Jesus is the exposition. Remember, he's the exegete. He explains God to us. So if you've seen Jesus, you have seen God. Jesus says, look, if you see me, you see the one who sent me. Do you want to know God? Do you want to love God? Love Jesus. John says that, or Jesus says that in John chapter 8, verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me. If you want to love the father, love the son. So Jesus says, I haven't come on my own initiative I'm not seeking the approval of man. I'm not seeking the glory of man. I'm living for the glory of my father. Number two, he says, I'm the true light. I am the true light. Verse 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. I'm the true light. Jesus has said that multiple times. I'm the light of the world. John said that in John chapter one. He is the light who's coming to give illumination to all men. Number three, Jesus says he's the life. He is the life, verse 47. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge, the, judge him, but I came not to judge the world. I came to save the world. I came to give life. That's exactly what John said in John chapter 1. In him is life, and that life is the light of men. Chapter 1, verse 4. And finally, Jesus says that he is the word that brings eternal life. Verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. I've been sent by the Father to reveal the Father. I am the true light. I am the true life. And I am the word that brings eternal life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He says, I'm not here to judge you. My words will judge you on the last day. If you have believed my words and followed me, then you will receive eternal life. But if you have not believed my words, then my words will judge you. I've come to save. I've come to save. So Jesus makes an invitation here. Will you believe? Anyone who wants to believe can believe. But to, to frame it with John's theology of unbelief, listen to Jesus's theology of unbelief, using kind of the negative of what he's just said. Unbelief chooses not to know God. You are choosing, if you do not believe in Jesus and follow him, you're choosing to say, I don't want to know God. I don't want to know him. I don't want to see him. I want to be on my own. Unbelief, number two, chooses to walk in darkness. You're saying, I don't need any light. Or maybe you know you need light, but you're saying, I don't want it. I'd rather stub my toe every second of every day and walk in my own darkness than admit I need light and I need help. Number three, unbelief chooses judgment and death 
Unbelief chooses that. Jesus isn't going to judge in these moments. Remember, he said, I haven't come to judge the world. I have come to save the world. But through him saving the world and offering himself as salvation, he naturally judges people through their rejection of him. Even as early as Simeon, back when Jesus was a little baby, Simeon said, this child is for the rise and fall of many. There are many that are going to love him and there are many that are not going to love him. He's going to bring a sword. He's going to divide. And if you choose not to believe, you will bring judgment and death upon yourself. Number four, unbelief chooses to reject the word of God. The word of God, the commandment that the Father has given for Jesus to speak is eternal life. And you say, I don't want it. You're choosing to reject it. But honestly, I don't think that's the tone of what Jesus is saying. I wanted to give the unbelief theology because we saw that with what John was saying. But I believe the tone here is an invitation. I believe John is stacking Jesus' words up to say one last time before the book continues into the second half. We kind of have an intermission here. And before the the curtain closes and the intermission happens, and before everybody kind of takes a deep breath, before they jump back into chapter 13, I think John is saying, will you believe? Will you believe? So let's put it positively. If you will believe, you will see and know the Father. If you will believe, you will have light. If you will believe, you will have abundant life here and now. And if you will believe, you will walk in freedom, embracing God's word as your will. You will, you will have life. In the first part of the gospel, which here is coming to a close, Jesus lives in complete obedience to the Father. In the second part of the gospel, he will die in that same complete obedience. And he's asking us, will you follow Will you follow? It's an invitation to believe. So we have John's theology of unbelief. We have Jesus' invitation to believe. Now, let's sum up this passage and everything we've seen in John thus far. Two points of conclusion here. Number one, God is sovereign over all belief and all unbelief. We have seen that time and time again in this gospel. And that's why John is going to end this first half of the gospel with this section. God's sovereign. This isn't taking God by surprise. He is sovereign and he plans belief and unbelief, but he does so, please hear me clearly, in a way that exalts his sovereignty and preserves man's responsibility. God plans and predestines and ordains and elects in a way that preserves man's responsibility. He does. You don't need to understand how he does that. Don't, Don't worry. You don't need to understand that. You can bow the knee to it because it's very clear in Scripture that both happen. It's mysterious how they happen, but we don't need to know the mystery. We can bow the knee to what's clearly given to us. God is sovereign, and you are responsible. 100% of both. When people ask me that, they try to get me into some debate or argument. Is God sovereign over every, you know, salvation and election? Yeah, absolutely. The Bible says so. Well, but then, I mean, is God, like, is he the one that's making us and forcing us? Then we don't, no, 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 we're completely responsible. It's 100% of both at the exact same time. How does that work? I don't know, because I'm not God. (laughs) But it does. The Bible says it does. Here's the reality for us. We've gone through 12 chapters that have preached both, right? If you want to be born again, is there anything you could do to make that happen? No. God needs to breathe life. But whoever will believe can be saved. Both. Whosoever believes and only those that God breathes life into. How they work together? 
I don't know. But here's what we've learned in 12 chapters of John. We love the Bible. We don't love systems. We don't love systems here. We love the Bible. And where the Bible preaches something clearly, we say, well, that's what that means. And where the Bible preaches something else clearly, we say, well, that's what that means. And we know that the Bible doesn't contradict. God's using them together. We don't love systems. We love the Bible. And we bow the knee to the Bible. God is not frustrated or thwarted by anything in this world. His plans are never thwarted by unbelief, ever. And he is never prevented from saving his own by their own free will. So let's bow the knee to God being sovereign over all belief and all unbelief. And let's bow the knee in such a way that we submit to this book and not to systems. And we exalt this book and say, hey, where there's mystery, let's enjoy it. It's okay to say we don't know how certain things work. That's totally fine. God is God and we are not. Point number two in conclusion. The call is to believe in Jesus. The call is to believe in Jesus. Yes, God is sovereign over belief and unbelief. But this whole book thus far has been, will you believe? Will you believe? Will you believe? Even here at the end, some people would read that section, God hardens hearts, he closes eyes, they're not able to repent, and they go, well, I'm hopeless. No, Jesus just says at the very end, John ends the chapter by saying, whoever will believe can believe. They both work together, and so don't get stuck in trying to figure something out before you make the right step. Just do the right thing and believe believe in Jesus. He is the glory of Isaiah chapter 6. He was the unattractive suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And therefore, because he was both, he was rejected by men, he was destined for the cross, and he's also destined for the salvation of the world. This message is for you today. And the reality is, the day is coming when you, if you do not believe now, and you will not believe later in life, there is a day coming when you will not be able to believe. And so I just want to plead with you. Maybe you believe the right facts about Jesus. If so, James would say, good for you. You're qualified to be a demon. You need to do much, much more than believe true facts about Jesus. Even the Pharisees believed, oh, Jesus obviously is who he claims to be. No man can do what you're doing unless they're sent by God. But what they fail to do and what demons fail to do is treasure and bow the knee to who Jesus is. You can admit, oh, I know who he is. I know what he did for me. I know who I am. I know what I need. But I don't want it. I don't accept it. And I don't love it. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, if you do not have love for Jesus, you will be condemned. You will be accursed. Demons know intellectually who Jesus is, but they don't bow the knee in love and affection for Jesus. They hate him. So, as you've seen 12 chapters worth of signs, you know who Jesus is. You know who he is. And now I'm pleading with you, and I believe Jesus is pleading with you at the end of this chapter. I'm pleading with you to love him, to treasure him more than your sin, to treasure him more than your selfishness, to treasure him more than the glory that man would give you, to treasure him more than your own will or your own autonomy. To say, I will love him more than anything in this life. Let the facts about who God is stir your affections to change your heart today.
And may God breathe life into those in this room who do not know him as Lord and Savior. The call is to believe. Now, if you have believed, then we get to gather and we get to celebrate. We get to celebrate that we believed not because we are amazing. We get to celebrate that we're saved not because we are worthy of being saved. We get to celebrate the worth of the one who saved us. And so we're going to sing a song and we're going to prepare our hearts. Hopefully they've been being prepared this whole time. But we're going to come before these elements. I'm going to ask the men to pass them out as we sing. And I want you to take them. I want you to hold them. We'll take them together. But here's what I want us, as we've heard all of John 1 through 12, here's where I want this moment to land on our hearts. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you know you've been forgiven of your sins, you have reason to rejoice. You are free. If the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. So we need to come before this table with humility. We were enslaved in our sin, and there was no hope. And Jesus in his grace said, I'll save you. So we need to come with humility, and we need to come with thankfulness. There's no way we could have ever gotten to God on our own. Remember when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. I'll bear the burden because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is, he, what is he referring to? He's referring to the burden of the law. If you want to get to God on your own apart from Jesus, there is a way. And the way is you need to keep every single law that God has given perfectly. Trying to do that will exasperate you. It will crush you. And that's why Jesus said, nobody is able to do that, but I can sit under the weight of keeping the law perfectly and never be crushed. And I will take that perfection to the cross and then I will be crushed on the cross by my Father so that you don't have to bear the penalty. And by these two elements, we can remember the perfection of Jesus given to us. His perfect sinless righteousness, his body perfect broken on the cross so that we could gain that perfection, not by any work that we can do, but by the work that Jesus did, living a perfect sinless life. And then his blood was poured out. He was nailed to a cross. He was beaten. He was scourged. And his blood was poured out such that our sin, though once a scarlet, could be made white as snow, forgiven, ransomed, healed, restored at the cross. We need to praise the Lord for what he's done And thank him with gratitude in our hearts. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus is Lord and Savior, you have reason to rejoice as we take these elements. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus is Lord and Savior, you're not sure. The Bible would say, let these elements pass. They're not for you. Uh, We don't want you, as Paul says, to drink judgment upon yourself. So if you don't know without a shadow of a doubt that if you were to die today, you would go to heaven because of the work that Jesus did on your behalf, just let these elements pass you by. But if you don't know, can I just plead with you, don't leave until you've talked to myself or one of the elders here or one of the other pastors here. Please don't leave. Today could be the day of salvation for you if you would turn and treasure Jesus above all things. God, thank you so much for Jesus. We want to celebrate him, our wonderful, merciful Savior. We want to celebrate and rejoice and enjoy him now, as we prepare our hearts to take communion together. So God, please 
be gracious to us and by your spirit raise affections for Jesus such that we would love him in a manner that's worthy uh, with affections appropriate to his excellence. We love him now.